This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 448th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a sports writer turned media mogul, nicknamed The Sports Guy, who made his name at ESPN, where he worked from 2001 through 2015 and was behind not only a hugely popular column, but also the BS Report podcast, the 30 for 30 documentary series, and the sports and pop culture blog Grantland. As the New York Times put it, he, quote, pioneered an intensely personal style of sports writing that draws on frequent references to movies, television sitcoms, music, video games, even his friends and wife, the sports gal, of course, always with a side dish of mortar-thick sports history and analysis, close quote. Meanwhile, the New York Times Magazine called him, quote, the most prominent sports writer in America, close quote. Slate described him as, quote, the most influential sports writer of his generation, close quote. And Rolling Stone said of him, quote, no sports writer has ever had as much success, close quote. After leaving ESPN, he founded the sports and pop culture website The Ringer, of which he is CEO, and he established a multi-platform relationship with HBO, for which he executive produced the most watched sports documentary in the cable network's history, 2018's Andre the Giant, and more recently executive produced the acclaimed documentary series Music Box, a collection of six documentaries about the music industry, which is now in serious contention for a Best Documentary or Nonfiction Series Emmy nomination. Bill Simmons. Over the course of our conversation, the 52-year-old and I discussed the roots of his love for sports and pop culture, and how, at the dawn of the internet, he escaped the restrictions of traditional media by starting a blog before there even was such a term. What led him to ESPN, and, once there, to spearhead some of the aforementioned initiatives beyond his column? What was really behind his departure from the worldwide leader in sports and how his second act has allowed him to revisit and try to improve upon some of the things that he had started during his first, including another podcast in the Bill Simmons podcast, now coming up on its 1000th episode and the most downloaded sports podcast of all time, another sports and pop culture hub in The Ringer, and another docuseries in Music Box, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Bill, thank you so much for doing the podcast. Great to have you. And on this podcast, we always begin truly at the beginning. I wonder if you could share with our listeners where you were born and raised and what your folks did for a living. Oh, wow. You're going way back. Oh, okay. yeah. I grew up in Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts. My dad was a superintendent and my mom was initially a teacher and then eventually became a homemaker. So, so only child, um, I wonder how that uh, you you feel may have shaped your, you know, you, your personality. I read that you were very, uh, I guess, very uh, big reader. Maybe that's a result of, of not having siblings around. But but what do you think? Big sports fan, big reader, big watcher. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think 
I think being an only child back then was probably more productive than maybe it is now. I think if there's so many distractions now, you know, it, it, but if you put me in a time machine and put me in 2022, I'm sure it would be like five hours of TikTok, <laughs> YouTube, video games, and I'm probably not reading anything. We we read back then because we didn't really have anything else to do. Right. You know, we watched Gilligan's Island and Brady Bunch and Good Times and Sanford and Son and all those shows because there wasn't we had five channels. Right, right. So same thing for sports. Like I watched I watched Red Sox games and, you know, May because it was the most interesting thing that was on and I love the Red Sox. So, you know, I think I think for what I ended up doing as a living, it was probably great that I didn't have siblings. Right. And in fact, you you know, when when we say you were a reader, let's not that's let's not understate it. I came across prepping for this one thing where you said, quote, I had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books. I had every issue of Sports Illustrated and Inside Sports since 1974. I had two decades yeah. of clippings from GQ, Esquire, The National, New Yorker and other places saved in Manila folders. Close quote. This th where, this love of sports, was it because of, was it sort of through your dad? I, I mean, growing up in Boston, the sports scene was really good, so it was hard not to get swept up in that. We had a really good sports section. The Boston Globe at that time was really good. And um, and the biggest thing for me is just my dad had season tickets for the Celtics. Initially, it was one. Then he ended up getting a second one when I was probably seven because he used to carry me in initially, and then we got the two seats. Right. But I think just being in the house for some great moments pushes it to another level. But um you know, Boston, the East Coast towns, I think, where you don't have the same kind of weather situation as some of the nicer places. The sports just seems to mean more. And for me, like, you know, I I, I loved reading, obviously. And they're, they're probably hit a point, maybe when I was the the freshman in college, that I thought maybe maybe I could do this for a living. Maybe I could write a sports column. I was writing a column for the for the uh, college newspaper and um and I was reading everything and I'd read every sports book and I was reading all the magazine stuff. And I really started to pay more attention to stuff that I liked, what worked, what didn't work, writers that I could emulate. Um, and I think your style, especially if you're a columnist, your style ends up being like five, six people, six, seven people, eight, nine people that you loved reading and you end up taking little pieces of each person. And then that eventually becomes your style. Do you remember who those people were for you at that time? Oh yeah. One of them just died, Roger Angel. Uh, and who, yeah. um, the way I wrote wasn't anything like the way he wrote, but you know, the thing I learned from him was he always looked at stuff from the fans perspective and, um, had, a, sometimes he would drift toward what the game and the experience meant to the fan and especially the losing piece of it. And he wrote Agincourt and after about the, uh, game six in the 75 world series. And, um, you know, that I thought that was like a seminal piece of writing for me. He, him, William Goldman was like that too, the movie stuff that he wrote, but specifically Wait Till Next Year, which was a sports book he wrote about uh, 1987 in New York. Him and Mike Lupka, they traded chapters and Goldman wrote from the fan. And, and I, that one really resonated with me as I was trying to figure out what kind of column I wanted to write. We, we had some good ones in Boston too, like Ray Fitzgerald and Lee Montville. Um, I think they wrote pretty atypical sports columns. Um, Mike Lupko is another one. And then, I mean, the, the biggest impact was probably David Halberstam mm -hmm. and breaks of the game. You wrote a great, uh, column when he died, right? I mean, he was obviously a big, yeah, yeah. Player. Yeah. And that, I don't think my style was anything like his style either, but I, it was more the craft of how he did it and how much TLC he put into that book and spending time with the characters and how he was able to say stuff without quotes. 
he he would try to read and analyze what he was seeing and and weave that in. So as as I got better and better at my column when I was especially when I got to ESPN, I think I would do that for better and worse sometimes. Really try to put myself in the heads of people or or think about things a little differently and use the fact that I didn't maybe have the same kind of access to break this stuff down. So yeah, I mean, if you're if you end up being good at writing, there's there's at least nine and ten people you're gonna be indebted to forever. Right. So for you, you you go off to Holy Cross for undergrad and then masters at BU. What was at, at you know at that time of your life? What was the best case scenario for where this would all lead? I mean, you know, I I really thought by senior year in college, I really thought I could have a column like, and you have like a rational confidence in that you know. But I was like, I'm as good as these guys. Anybody I'm reading, I can I can be better than those guys. You don't actually know that, but you know you think <laughs> it. Right. Um, but I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Senior year in college, all of a sudden it's a year away. I had friends that were going to like law school and business school and I didn't know what I was going to do. And kind of belatedly applied to three grad schools. And I got into all three and I wanted to stay at BU because of the Boston sports scene. And I, I'd always wanted to actually live in Boston as an adult. And um, I just assumed like, all right, I'll graduate. They'll give me a column right away. <laughs> and I'll be like the globe's best guy. And then, right. you know, you fast forward to a year later and you're doing Chinese food orders and, <laughs> you know, taking scores from volley, high school volleyball scores over the phone from, you know, hey, this is uh, Bob from Concord. We played Concord. <laughs> we played uh, Lemons to High. And uh, and you're like, what, what happened? I thought I was going to get a column. So that was that was pretty um I don't know. It's pretty enlightening and sobering, but it was a different time. We didn't have the internet back then. We had, right. you know, you had one or two local newspapers, you had one weekly and you had one monthly magazine. And if you didn't make it for one of those four places, you weren't writing. Well, so I guess when you come out of the master's program, you're, you actually did get a taste of, of one of those places and it wasn't a very tasty taste, right? I mean, this was pretty uh, dis- disillusioning few years at, at was the Herald. Yeah, the Boston Herald. Um, you know, I look back; some of it was probably my fault too. I, I, I definitely thought I was ready for way more. You know, but that, there's a pecking order at the time. There's people who are never going to leave, and I, I started doing the math. I'd been there two years. I was like their top high school guy heading into my third year, and I had this realization that um, three years from now, I was probably going to be in the same place unless like somebody died or somebody left, <laughs> and. You start, so I started writing for the Boston Phoenix and I did a bunch of columns for them. And then the person who had hired me and really liked me, they left. And then the new person didn't want sports. And it was just like classic story of just just doors getting slammed. And um, by the spring of 96, I decided I wanted to be a freelancer and I wanted to bartend and I was going to be able to make more money that way. And I was going to try to write scripts and a book. And I was like, this is going to be great. And then 10 months later, you look up and, you know, you're getting up at 3.30 in the morning or you're going to bed at 3.30 in the morning because you're bartending. And, um, and <laughs> I heard that at like the lowest of lows, I don't know if that's the right characterization, but there was a point where you were ready to get into commercial real estate. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was actually after I launched my website. And okay. I thought like about two years in, in 1999, I thought this is going to happen. Like, I, like I'm good at this. Like I, somebody's going to notice. And then 
six more months passed and six more months passed. And by the time it got to like summer 2000, um, I was, I was heading toward hitting 30 or maybe I was 30. I don't know. Yeah. I, I was 30 at that point. And, um, it was just like, is this going to happen? Like I, I got to make some money at some point. Like I wanted to get engaged and really started thinking about, um, you know, real estate. Cause that was the one thing I was, I had a pretty good head for that. My stepfather was in it. And, um, and my future wife actually was like, you can't quit yet. You can't like you, you're, you're, you know, you're good at this, like, keep it going, keep it going. And then I think the winter 2000 heading into 2001, that was when it felt like just the column was getting more notice. You know, I was pretty early on that stuff, especially like AOL for the first two years, you had to have AOL to read it. We didn't have, we weren't like on the real internet and, um, people were emailing stuff around and things like that. But by 2000, 2001, it felt like people could read it at work. I remember that, that sounds stupid, but that was like a real game changer for me. Like I had, my friends could actually read my column during the day. And so it felt, I felt like I had some momentum finally. And I just want to, you know, clarify for anybody trying to keep track at home that when we're talking about the column at that point, this is basically you talked your way into a, a not particularly lucrative deal with the Boston offshoot of or AOL's Boston chapter, which I guess they had a Boston movie guy. So the pitch was you should have a Boston sports guy. Yeah. They had these things, digital city. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think what the, what the, I guess the equivalent now would be like the, the SB nation cities or, right. or eater Los Angeles, whatever. But this was for, they were like these digital newspapers that AOL had. And what they were doing was they were hiring yeah, honestly, a lot of failed newspaper people. So it would be like the editor of so-and-so used to be the editor of this place and then hasn't worked in a couple of years and it was stuff yeah, like that. Right. And so it was either people who it was their last chance to kind of make it or people like me who were like willing to do anything to break through the door. So I, you know, the first year or so I wasn't making any money, which was fine. I just, I was so happy for the opportunity and I was bartending and trying to do both. And then eventually like with freelance and things like that. I was able to get enough that I could kind of quit the bartending within a year Mm -hmm. and a half and gave it an honest effort. But I guess the greatest appeal, it seems, obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but here, when you, when you're at the Herald or anywhere like that, there's a way that if you, you you write a column, it's going to be a certain number of words. You have to conform to a certain style. Nobody's, it was the wild West, right? For, for, yeah. I mean, I would think that seems like the greatest appeal of, of going online. Yeah, that was, that was definitely one thing that helped. And the other thing was for what I was trying to do, there was nobody trying to do it. Like the, the media back then was very rigid. It was a newspaper culture. It was, you had to go to the games, you wrote your comms a specific way. They were a certain length. Um, they were very antagonistic toward players and teams and, I just, I felt with, with the radio stations back then and the newspapers, I just felt like nobody was serving me and my friends. You know, I was mm-hmm. in my mid twenties at that point. Nobody was making the jokes that we made. Um, <laughs> nobody talked about the sports the way we talked about it. And I felt like if I, if I could figure out the right column for my friends, that will work. And, you know, it, and I was looking at like Mike and the Mad Dog were a pretty big influence at that point sure. because- even though that was New York, we could get it in some parts of Massachusetts or I get it. But when I went to go see my mom in Connecticut and my friends back there, um, the, the 
the way they interacted and I felt like they were my buddies and I, you know, and I was in the backseat of their conversation. I felt like that could work. And so there are some pieces, but I, I, you definitely had some advantages because, you know, now it's so different. There's so many different voices and so many different types of ways to talk about sports, consume sports. And then Twitter obviously is, you know, changed things more than anything. But um, back then it was an advantage. Well, and I guess though, the, the, the flip side is that it wasn't necessarily treated with all that much respect. You've said it wasn't until I guess Peter Gammons started writing for the web that people began to take sports writing online a little bit more seriously. Yeah. Not even more seriously. Like I think that when ESPN took Gammons was the biggest baseball writer in the world and he was on ESPN and he wrote his column for the globe and then he moved the column to ESPN.com. And that was the first time people like my dad were like, how do I get ESPN.com? You know, and <laughs> I think for a couple of years there, especially when I was on, and I made this joke before, but, you know, I tell people I wrote a column, Digital City Boston was on the internet and you could kind of see people, it, it sounded like I was like selling snake oil or something, you know, <laughs> like, wait, what, what are you doing? Is that a real job? Do you get paid for that? And I think, you know, when I went to ESPN, I knew the potential of it because, um, I'd seen they launched page two, like eight to nine months before. And some of it worked, some of it didn't, you know, they were trying to mix sports and pop culture a little bit was, was something I was already doing. They were hiring, they had Wiley, they had Halberstam, they had Hunter Thompson, they had some names. Wiley was probably the only one who was still like throwing his fastball at that point. But, um, I just saw the opportunity and I felt like ESPN had, was turning into a place that if you're a sports fan, you went there every day if you're on the internet. And um, from and when I got there to really when we formed Grantland those next 10 years, ESPN became the dominant place. It, it was really cool to be, you know, at the forefront of that because um, by two, especially by 2004, um, it, it just from a sports writing and a sports coverage standpoint, it was just so different than it was five years earlier. It was the place you went to. So just to break down the the chronology of this, when they launched page two, I guess it's 2000, you're pretty devastated that they don't immediately reach out, right? It was only then, I guess, a year or so later that they start saying, hey, we have a few freelance gigs. And I, I believe that's when you kind of made made a big impression for for them with uh, is Clemens, the Antichrist was one of those guest columns. Um, but the I first mean, the one was a Nomar column. I remember. A Nomar, okay. But yeah, I, I wouldn't say I was devastated that they didn't hire me. I was more like, wow, I can't believe they didn't hire me. I'm like, right. perfect for this. Like, <laughs> like what a miss by those guys. Right. But I wasn't right. like, I, what page two just wasn't that good the first six, seven months. So I didn't feel like I had missed this unbelievable opportunity. It was more like, wow, I really could have helped them. I can't believe you know, and it goes back to the rational confidence thing, but yeah. So <laughs> they reached out and they asked me to write this piece about Nomar. I did, that one did really well. Then they asked me to write, write an NBA piece. And then Clemens was the third one. Mm-hmm. And that one I think hit the biggest and then started to get momentum to get hired from that point on. So who was, who was it there that kind of got it enough to say we should bring this guy in house? Well, John Walsh was one of them who ironically became my mentor. I don't know if that's the right use of ironically. Um, <laughs> and then Kevin Jackson and Jay Lovinger, they they really pushed for it too. Um, and it was, I had had this offer to 
take my column to the Boston Herald that I was thinking about because it had benefits. Mm-hmm. And at that point I was, you know, 30, 31 years old and I still didn't have benefits. Right. And, uh, and so I was, I was thinking about that, but I really wanted the ESPN thing. And, and somehow I figured out how to play it so that ESPN was like, Oh, we got to get this guy. He's going to go to the Herald. And I, <laughs> I, it was like 90% intentional and 10% just kind of dumb luck. But, right. um, but from the moment they hired me, I was like, I, I know I can, I know this comp can blow up if I don't, if I don't F this up. So. Well, I guess though, that's makes it in some ways seem to me a, a little, a little even more ballsy that it was very early on when you're at, at ESPN that you kind of, I don't know how, how this all kind of uh, played out, but that you're like, I am actually going to relocate to LA because Jimmy Kimmel, a, a admirer of your column, preceding ESPN, I guess, says, come be part of the writing staff as I launch my late night show. But I guess, how did you position it so that you were able to keep a a toe or more than a toe in ESPN while doing the late night stuff while relocating to the West Coast? So I I had the page two column probably for about a year when I started talking to Jimmy. And the column was hitting really well, but I almost didn't know how well I was doing because I was in Boston. Right. And, um, I think it was probably doing better than I realized, but I knew it was doing well. Um, but I also knew like it was an internet sports column at the time. I felt like that was the gateway for me to do something else. You know, it's like, ultimately if I write scripts, that'll be more stable. I right. ironically, it was the complete opposite. Now right. that was the right use of ironically. Um, <laughs> but it was like, if I can just get open the door and then I can go to Hollywood and then I can write scripts and now I can have a real career. And I came out and I worked for Jimmy and I, and ESPN was very gracious. John Skipper, um, let me, as long as I like kept a column, like basically I forget it was like maybe 40 a year or something. And I had a little ESPN magazine thing, but then I could work for Jimmy. So I tried to do both and did that for about a year and a half. And, the column was just, the ESPN was getting bigger and bigger. And when I got to LA, I kept running into people who were like, I love the column, man. I, why aren't you writing more? And and <laughs> and I was working on Jimmy's show and I loved working for Jimmy's show and I loved working for Jimmy and he's became a really good friend. But um, you'd have shows where you got like one joke on, you know, and and I and then I would write a column for ESPN. I'm leading this website in you know a hundred countries or however many thing. And I'm like, what? What did I just do? Wait, wait a second. Should I? Did I give that up too early, or or did I underestimate the power of it? So I started well, talking to them. It didn't sort of come to a head though, in a way where these two worlds collide. Where I'd read there's something you were doing for Jimmy with Mike Tyson, where it was like this should be a column. Yeah, we did uh, his uncle Frank, who was hilarious. We were on the rooftop in Harlem shooting this bit about uh, Tyson's pigeons. And it all ended up being like a four and a half minute segment, which was actually one of the better things we did when I was there, at least that I was involved with. But I do remember thinking like this, I wish I I should be writing about this. Like, why am I here as like a video person? And so that was probably like about nine months before I left. But that was the first time I started thinking about it seriously. And then um, in October 2003, the Red Sox blew game seven to the Yankees. And I stayed up until 3.30 in the morning that night. And I wrote a column about it, which I think was one of my better columns at the time. And 
um, the next day I went to work to write for Jimmy's show and I was still so upset about the game. I left at like three 30, but, um, the feedback that column got, that was another one that made me think like, what am I doing? Like, you know, you have this platform, it's pretty special. Like, did I underestimate it? So I, I think that's when we really started talking about coming back. And then I, I think I came back April, 2004. And when I came back to ESPN, it was at a different place, you know, in the ecosystem. Well, it's actually uh, perfect that you bring up that moment with, cause we all know how that series actually ended. And yeah. I, I, it kind of leads to a, a question that I had, which is you, you've always been, and you kind of talked about earlier associated with this idea of writing from, from the fans perspective or, or speaking from the fans perspective, did it help? How, how helpful was it when during the time that you were at ESPN, the teams that you're the biggest fan of the Boston sports teams in this period won nine championships. Is it a lot easier to be enthusiastic and passionate and hardworking when you actually give a shit about what's, what's going on? Definitely more relevant, probably hurt me though, because they were so successful. I was probably writing, you know, I always felt like I had to write about them and, and it was almost like, a little too Boston centric, but at the same time, I don't know how you could avoid it. Like Brady, I showed up at ESPN in April, 2001 and Brady became the Patriots starter six months later, you know, the Red Sox, everything switched for them in 2003. And, uh, you know, I, that was definitely fortuitous in 2004. Cause I'd come back to ESPN. They made me like their biggest guy on the website. I had my own little page and stuff like that. But at the same time, the Red Sox were embarking on this journey and I was writing about it in real time and going to the games and just writing from it, I think from a different perspective than the newspaper coverage in a good way for me. Um, and then everything led to October and, um, you know, just a really cool situation. Like as a kid, I had always dreamed of writing for the Boston Globe and being the guy coming off a big game that was going to have the peace. You know, I used to go to, there was this restaurant sports bar called the forest that was across the street from the garden. And they used to have this frame Bob Ryan piece that he wrote after game six of the 1981 NBA finals. It was a gamer. It was great. <laughs> the picture Larry Bird on it. And, and when we would stay in the lobby waiting for a table, I'd always read that piece and be like, yeah, that's like, that's where you want to be, where you have like the piece after a game. So to, to have that happen to me in October, 2004, that was like bucket list, you know, mm-hmm. cause I just felt like at that point, everyone was reading ESPN.com. And every time I wrote about whatever was going on, the Red Sox, it was leading the page in a big way. And, um, it's like, that was like, I don't know, 15 years of work dating back to freshman year in college to get to that moment. So that was pretty cool. Where does the entrepreneurial chip come from? Because let's just note that in those next few years, uh, BS Report podcast starts in May 2007. 30 for 30 launches in October 2009. Grantland launches in June 2011. I don't know. I mean, I think you probably would have been uh, a retained and valued employee if you had just done what you had been doing up to, right. you know, all along. But you it seems like we're hungrier for more. Uh, maybe we can start with the with the BS podcast as a, as a, or BS report podcast as an example. I mean, this is 2007. Can you, what, what did the podcast landscape 
look like at that moment for people who need a reminder? And what 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 would make you decide to get into that? I think you have to go back a year earlier because 06 was when I really started thinking about I didn't want to be in this exact same spot I was in the year before. Like I wanted to leave the end of every year and be like, I, I added this one thing. I did this one thing. I really wanted to challenge myself. And, you know, 06, I started dabbling behind the scenes with them. I was helping them with this fantasy football show that they were making. And um, my contract was coming up and I, and I told them like, I really want to be more involved in the behind the scenes stuff. Like I, I, I think I'm creative. Like I, think I can help. I think I can come up with ideas. And Skipper, to his credit, um, was like, I agree with you. Like, I, like, let's figure it out. So I remember we were at the Rose Bowl. It was beginning in 2007. And we kind of finalized what the next three-year deal was. And um, probably within a couple weeks, I sent them the 30 for 30 memo because I had been thinking about that a lot and um, laid out this whole idea be- that really stem from how badly the 25th anniversary went for them. Cause I think, mm-hmm. I think at the time, especially you could feel it working for ESPN. That was when people started to turn on ESPN a little bit. Um, it was during that time of like ESPN, the zone ESPN, the Gatorade um, ESPN 25th anniversary, where it was like a big jerk off fest for how great ESPN was. And I think you could feel that was the first time people were like, eh, <laughs> I don't really, I don't really like ESPN this much anymore. And the, these guys, they keep hitting me over the head with ESPN. I'm a little tired of it. So I knew the 30th anniversary was coming and it was like, how do we, you know, that's still something. How can we do the the smart, correct version of this? And so that was a piece. And then it just, it never sat right with me that HBO owned the sports documentaries and that we didn't, and we had done a couple of good ones, but for the most part, the ones we did were all over the place and, there was no way for people who went to ESPN to know documentary, documentary, whether it was good or not. We had kind of lost the trust of the people. So I took those two things and I did that whole memo about we can make 30 films about 30 years at ESPN. And, you know, I had the name in the memo, amazingly, like that. I just liked the name 30 for 30. So somehow yeah. that stuck. And then one of the wrinkles was that we get four big time filmmakers to maybe make four of the 30 as like a wrinkle. And then, so they really liked it and they directed me to Connor who I knew a little bit, but he was this kind of young executive for them. And he read the memo and he was like, you know, I don't think we can do, I don't think we should do four. I think we should just get 30 filmmakers. I'm like, great. Mm -hmm. And then for the next, Nine to 10 months, we just tried to figure it out. And everyone left us alone because nobody thought it was going to happen. And we we figured out how we want to do it, what it would cost. And everything led to this big um, meeting we had in Battery Park in 2008, where they kind of had to decide whether they were going to commit the money. Because we it was going to be like 15 million bucks. It was going to be 500,000 a film. At the time, documentaries weren't cool at all. There probably weren't enough people to make them. It was a really ambitious effort, but we we spent so much time figuring out a blueprint that no matter who, and we had some naysayers in the room, the biggest naysayer would be like, eh, I guess we got to do that. Like we had every question answered. We had every possible thing that they could hang us on. They couldn't. And there was just, we had it paid for 
just everything. There was there was like literally no reason not to do it. So that's why it got greenlit. And, you know, when you look back, even when we launched it, like they didn't really market it, which was nuts to us. And I, I remember, I, I think I put this on Instagram, I, that email I had to send to my friends and coworkers, like, hey, <laughs> we're launching this series. Wanted to tell you about it. It's so funny when you think what's happened to Third Fair since. Right, right. So yeah, so that, that part was cool. And then the podcast happened like three, four months after that memo. Mm-hmm. Um, when, uh, that, I mean, that was more just dumb luck. It was like, I saw Chad Ford interviewing Danny Ainge on the website and like, what's that? It's radio on demand. And I asked for the equipment and just started doing them. But that's, that in itself is, is really interesting to me that you're going to get into stuff that you hadn't done before. I mean, what on paper, what should qualify you at that time? Like somebody could say, what qualifies Bill to make a documentary series you had not made, you were not a filmmaker. Um, and obviously though it connects all these years later to music box. So I'm just wondering, was this in some ways you talked about, well, maybe in, maybe the dream is I'll end up writing scripts in Hollywood or something. Was this sort of the way to, to blend the two passions of having some kind of foot in filmmaking, but while still doing sports? Yeah, definitely a little bit. I think, to me, it all came down to the same basic premise, which is like ideas and intuition, right? That could work for a column, that can work for what works for a podcast, that could work for a documentary series. But I, I think I've always just been pretty good at like, especially if somebody had a good idea, make it a little bit better. Or if we're spitballing a bunch of ideas, I'm, I'm always a good person to have in that room, you know? And I had a really big reservoir of sports history. So at that time, there were so many documentaries on the table. Now, most of them are gone, but right. in 2007. So when we're in room, we're trying to figure it out. I had, I think I had a pretty good instinct for like, what about this? What about this? What? And some of them we ended up not doing. I mean, now Andre the Giant one we wanted to do, we ended up not doing that until I did it for HBO like 11 yeah. years later. But um, That was a mistake by them because that's, I think, still HBO's highest rated Sports yeah, that, that I don't. That was WWE just not letting us do it. Actually, to be fair, okay, but, okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think one thing that I helped with two things with that series once it got going because once we got going and the films were going, we had this whole awesome team. I would give notes on cuts, stuff like that. But it, once it left me and Connor, it went into this machine, and and that was that was awesome to watch. How many people have to be involved for a series like that to work? I think for for me that the the big ways I was able to help were notes in the doc, which I just intuitively understood because it was very similar to writing a column. Like what should stay, what should go, what is the narrative structure of something? What is the do you you have the thread of the story you're telling once you start veering too far away from it? That's usually when documentaries fall apart. When it's like a documentary is telling this story, and wait, let's stop over here and let's get sidetracked, and then you're like, well, wait a second, I thought we were going that way. And that's honestly not much different than writing. So I think that helped. And then um, I did have some cachet at the time with the filmmakers, um, you know, because I, let's I know was, who we're talking about, because you guys, it's unbelievable. I don't know if all of these were, uh, you know, chronologically who was in what order, but Steve James, John Singleton, Brett Morgan, Ron Shelton, Barbara Koppel, Peter Berg. Barry Levinson, Albert Mazels, Alex Gibney. And by the way, I'm not reading everyone. I'm reading the ones that are like A-list documentary. Morgan Spurlock, Frank Marshall, Nanette Burstein, Marina Zenovich, Judd Apatow, Stanley Nelson, A.J. Schnack, on and on. And then I, you guys were also some of the first films from people who are not known as filmmakers. Ken Jeong, Colin Hanks, Katie Holmes, Ice Cube, Steve Nash. I guess just like 
your I, the thing that I I feel like even if you were less involved as time went on, the general idea of what a thirty for thirty doc was was probably it seems like set by you pretty early on, which is we're not going to do the obvious you know miracle on ice or something. It's got to be what what was going to set these apart. Well, they're they're basically going to be an hour, right? So. Mm-hmm. That and that was kind of liberating because instead of doing the Maricon Ice, Joe Lewis, <laughs> Mickey Mantle, we could do stuff like, you know, Reggie Miller versus the Knicks. The, mm-hmm. To me, that's like the perfect example of a volume one 30 for 30. You would never in a million years think that that was a documentary. And yet it totally was. It mm-hmm. was a very confined, tight story. Dan Corris did an amazing job with it. I think he interviewed 66 people. I think the thing was, and it might, might have been a tiny bit more than an hour. Um, but to me, that's like the perfect example. That never would have been an HBO documentary. And I think most people wouldn't have thought that was going to be a sports documentary, but we're telling stories. So, you know, the seminal moment for 30 for 30 for us, because there ha- you have to get the first filmmaker. And once you get the first one, then you can point to that person and you can say, we have this guy. And then somebody like Peter Berg goes, you have that guy? All right. Now, right. you know, and that, then you get Peter Berg and it's like, but it, anyway, the first guy was Barry Levinson mm-hmm. and we met with him. We pitched him an idea and he's like, that's a good idea. I've always had this idea. And he gave, pitched us this other idea about the Baltimore Colts marching band. And we were like, that's a good idea. Would you do that for us? He's like, yeah. And once he was in, then we get Mike Tolan and Peter Berg and John Singleton. It just becomes so much easier that you also, we also had some dumb luck, right? We had Albert Mazels. We talked to his people and he had just shot all this Ali footage in the late seventies. Never did anything with it because the Ali Holmes fight was so, it was, I think it was 1980. The Ali Holmes fight was so depressing. Didn't do anything, but he's like, well, we've always wanted to do something with this. And we are like, Ollie Holmes, you have all that stuff? <laughs> so that happens. Then right. then Steve James is like, yeah, I've always wanted to do this Alan Iverson. Then once you get Steve James, it's over because yeah, he was right. the biggest sports stock guy we had. So, you know, I, I the volume one was harder because this is going to sound crazy now. So there's hundreds of awesome filmmakers now, but there just weren't a lot of documentary filmmakers back then. Most of the people that did documentaries, they would do stuff like, I'm going to Ethiopia for eight years to do a documentary about the water (laughs) supply that's going to, you know, I'm going to devote my life to this and try to get some sort of grant from a university or whatever. It was MacArthur Foundation. Yeah. Yeah. They weren't looked at like entertainment. So like Gibney was somebody that wasn't in the first volume, but he came right after once he saw what he was doing. He's like, hey, I want to be in. So the first volume, I think, opened the doors for you know, everything. The funny thing for us is ESPN tried to kill it after the first volume. What? And yeah, that, that was, that was one of my first forays into company politics because <laughs> the people who were, had taken over weren't getting the credit for, they weren't there when we launched 30 for 30. So they were like, we're going to change this into ESPN films presents. So we did a couple more documentaries and people were like, that new 30 for 30 was awesome. And we were like, no, no, those are ESPN Films Presents. We're not calling them 30 for 30s anymore. And Connor and I really started lobbying Skipper and Walsh. And we just, we were just like, look, everyone thinks these are 30 for 30s. Everyone wants the series to come back. We'll get it paid for us. So we came up with this whole plan. At that point, Grantland was being ideated and um, 
we were like, what, 30 for 30 shorts. So that was a piece of it. Yep. We'll do 30 more. And this will be the second volume. This will be the final volume. And we'll end it with some giant multi-part thing. And we can get better directors. We have a bunch of stories left. Let's go. And that was, once they greenlit that, um, you know, I wish the, I wish the series had ended after 60. Um, you know, it, that's kind of what was supposed to happen, but it's still on, which I guess is cool in some ways, but in other ways it was kind of supposed to be 60 and done. So one last quick thing about 30 for 30 stuff. Uh, you, if there's a Bill Simmons college course and they can only see one, they only have time for one screening of a 30 for 30, what is the one that you'd want them to see? I'd say probably the, definitely something from the first volume and probably the Reggie Miller one, because I think that is the one that probably best explains what we were trying to do with the series and just how creative that was and the story. I mean, the one that was astounding in real time was the one the Zimbalist brothers did about the Escobar, the Escobars, yeah. the Escobars yeah. and it just like, um, those guys went down <laughs> to South America with a translator and in 10 months made this documentary that honestly should take like three years. And if it was like being done by Netflix now, they would have gotten 15 million bucks for that and two years to work on it and the whole thing. We were like on a deadline back then and I, I we were just in awe of that one. Um, just that like how degree of difficulty. So I, I think the more of these that I've done over the years, like the degree difficulty part, like the one Tommy Oliver just did for us about Juice World for Music Box, we had like 11 months to go through 10,000 hours of footage and carve something into a coherent story. I just don't think people understand how hard that is. And especially when you're the director and it's like you and your editor and two other people, the kind of rabbit hole you have to go down to, how dark that can get. Yeah when it's just like you and this footage and you're the only one who can see this maze of stuff. Like I, I just have so much respect and admiration for the people that do this stuff. I think it's, I think it's so much harder than people realize. I think it's totally. the hardest thing to do creatively. Well, definitely uh, coming in a moment to, to music box and how this all sort of brings all of what we're talking about together. But just to, to keep it going a little chronologically here, you mentioned yeah. Grantland, which goes off. I in, screwed up on the podcast. I screwed up your timeline. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. So Grantland goes up in 2011. I remember at one point you had said it was basically going to be like to ESPN what Miramax was to Disney, which was an interesting yeah. um, idea. But just like kind of the you, same ending. Yeah. <laughs> so how though at the beginning at a, at at a really at a time I was in you know not sports journalism but entertainment journalism myself and I know the whole everything was nobody has an attention span anymore stop writing so long make things tighter so how in that exact climate do you sell ESPN on doing something which is going to be aiming to do more long form I mean, the short answer is I had a lot of leverage. Right, right, <laughs> right, right, right. In 2009, we launched 30 for 30. And critically, it just did really well the first couple weeks. People really liked it. They were really pleasantly surprised that ESPN did something like that. And the, the kind of goodwill and good press that came from that, even though the ratings weren't there right away, but there was already a rewatchability that we could see. So I had that. That was good. And then I released my book 
in October 2009. That was the first really successful book they ever had. It was like number one on New York Times. And this is book so of that basketball. happened. And then I still was like their biggest columnist and I had their only big podcast. So I, I had like crazy amounts of leverage. And what I really wanted to do was Grantland. And um, I think that the the breakthrough for me was the 30 for 30 process and being in rooms and spitballing with people, which I loved at Jimmy's show. Yeah. I just didn't want to be by myself writing. I wanted to be, I wanted to create something with other people and I wanted um, to create something from scratch. I felt like there was a real zag because of what you just said. Everybody was like, things have to be shorter and dumber. And, and I was like, I had the biggest column on ESPN and I'm writing like 8,000 word mailbags. Right. Like, I don't right. think this is true. <laughs> like I know from how I read stuff, like I read long stuff all the time. I just don't agree with this theory that everything has to be short. So um, there were also a lot of good people available and out there. It's incredible. I, I just want to remind folks, you guys at various times, uh, Colson Whitehead, Wesley Morris, Dave Eggers, I mean, many others who I think have uh, obviously followed you to the ringer and, and, but just like it is, it's, it's now discussed by people who were there as you're well aware as sort of like a, a golden age. I don't know if, did you realize that in the moment? I, I did two years in, I think, um, I think 2013, we, we started to feel like something special was happening and, uh, you know, we had so many good writers. I think one of the cool things was we had so many good writers that, you know, that there's this friendly competition that happens where people, you know, if they're leading the page on a given day over Wesley Morris and me and Zach or whatever, like, you know, you really right. wrote something. <laughs> um, I think there, you know, obviously there's things you would do a little bit differently, like you would with anything. But in that case, um, with the pretty small staff that we had, um, the fact that we we're trying to mix sports and pop culture and do all this um, multimedia stuff that I still don't feel like we got enough credit for. Like we had a YouTube channel, we built our own studio. We had, by the end of Grant, we had nine of their 10 biggest podcasts. We had 30 for 30 shorts, which we won an Emmy for. Yeah. Um, we produced a documentary that Serge Ibaka did. So we, we were doing all these different things and the goal was always to become like a digital multimedia piece of ESPN and um and to find the best possible talent and i think the amount of talent that we either found or elevated or both in in that four years is pretty crazy to look back on like some really really great people who've gone on to do even bigger things in some cases totally so just just for the purposes of connecting the dots and how hbo and the ringer enter the picture we just briefly have to acknowledge that you you left espn may uh, of 2015. This is, I guess, May 7th. You go on the Dan Patrick show and say whatever about Goodell. This is having had a that, few. That was crazy, though. I barely said anything. I, I to right. me, that was like <laughs> I, the yeah, test, testicular fortitude is not. I don't see how that's and bad, that was like but, a joke. I think things right. had gotten so bad that um, I don't think. I mean, Skipper came on my podcast a few years later, and we had this open conversation about it, and yeah. He admits like he handled it wrong and was just like, I thought you were going to leave. I just wanted to beat you to it. You know, <laughs> it, it turned into this really competitive, um, I don't know, kind of dick swinging contest. Yeah. That was unfortunate. But I think when, when I got suspended, it was never the same after that. 
But I guess my my question, if you were to sort of psychoanalyze yourself, because this came that that Dan Patrick appearance came a few weeks after, right? There had been the some sort of a, a sanction for saying something else about Goodell. And I guess on the Dan Patrick show, you'd also said something like, you know, I dare somebody to do something about this. So the question that I have is. No, that was on my podcast. That was in September. That was on your podcast. Okay. Yeah. So, so the question that I have is, do you think there was a part of you that wanted to be let go or fired or freed or however we talk about it? Was this sort of in some ways subconsciously, consciously pushing for that to happen? No, not, it, it was actually the opposite. If you go back and you look at even the last six months that I was there, I was working my ass off for those guys. Like we had the Grantland Basketball Hour. I was doing my podcast. I launched a second basketball podcast. I was still writing all the time. I was still running Grantland. We were just finishing um, that last stretch of 30 for 30, and we were starting to work on the OJ one, and that was happening. Um, so – you know, we were preparing. I was doing all the travel for Grantland. I was going to do the draft. I, th I think what happened is that night, the reason it went down that night was they were mad that I went on the Dan Patrick show that I didn't, that I hadn't told them, hadn't given them a heads up. It wasn't even the Tisteco Fortitude thing. And I had just been on that show like a month before. And it was like, I have to give you guys a heads up every time I do a radio thing. And just the way they handled it, it made me mad. And I, so I sent an email to the, Per, the person who ran ESPN at that point, uh, the pro programming side, John Wildhack. And I was like, I'm not doing the NBA draft this year. I've, I've, uh, I'm just going to be too busy and uh, you're going to have to find somebody else. And that was, I think, now the pissing contest was starting. And I right. think that's what did it. Because, yeah, I was planning, we were going to take Grantland Basketball Hour on the road, me and Jalen, for the uh, last two rounds of the playoffs. I was going to do the draft. I was still working my butt off for them. So it definitely was not, Definitely was not anything other than uh, something that a, a situation that was pretty tenuous that just kind of blew up. Well, I guess it's only it was only like three months before you started the new life that you continue to live to this day with HBO and then The Ringer not far beyond that. And I guess still doing documentaries, even from the very early on with the Andre the Giant uh, stuff at, at HBO, but. I wonder, probably pretty early on, thinking about what's become Music Box, the, the yeah. first season. Um, so I guess just was the idea of of HBO like, hey, let's see if we can grow this into doing more on-air TV as well, or not on-air, but whatever, on cable. And then with The Ringer that maybe reinvent Grantland, but in some way differentiate. I mean, what was the what was the thesis statement for the ringer that differentiated it from from Grantland. We felt like we had some benefits, right? The people, the four people that I that I took from Grantland initially, we just all were really worked well together. And I knew like, all right, we have this. How can we create a universe like Grantland that's going to feel different? We knew it had to be more reactive. We knew that we would have advantages, you know, being able to build up young talent, because we knew we'd be able to find talent. We invested pretty heavily in the behind the scenes and took more chances on younger writers for the most part. We knew the podcast piece was going to be able to pay for a big chunk of it because I knew what my podcast was worth, which was ironically one of the things that, you know, I was battling ESPN about. Um, and we were trying to launch it without having too much interference because what we wanted to create was like 
basically the two, the late 2010s version of the same kind of digital me- multimedia ecosystem we had created at Grantland. Um, we knew the documentaries were going to be a big piece of it. And um, the HBO piece, initially the thought was like my TV show would be one of the anchors of it, right? And um, I put a lot of thought into what I thought, what kind of show would work and what had really worked for my podcast. Because at that point I had done eight years of podcasts I had one of the biggest ones. I had had a ton of great guests. And over and over again, the guests were like, that was awesome. I love doing interviews like that. I never, so I felt like that should be the show. And I think what I didn't realize that I realized way after was that podcasts had kind of replaced shows like that, right? It, it, you know, you think like, all right, this works in podcasts. So it will work as a TV show. It's like, no, actually it just works in podcasts now. (laughs) Um, Instead of like editing it out and, you know, so whatever. So the show didn't work, but I think we still had the HBO relationship, which for the documentaries were supposed to be a bigger part early. I, I think HBO Sports, when I joined, they had a head of sports. He left within six months. Somebody new came in and was pretty overmatched. And if you go back and you look at just what HBO Sports, those first three, four years, they just weren't doing anything. And they let boxing go and um, the brand kind of started to die and, and it's really unfortunate. Um, but I thought going in, I thought like I can, let's go. I mean, we, we talked a lot about the last dance bringing, um, when that was being shopped around. And I, I was like, I really felt passionately cause I had seen it happen with 30 for 30 that that kind of IP was worth more than a movie, mm-hmm. you know? And at the time I was like, well, it might cost 15, 20 million. It's like, so what? Like, this will be worth like 50 million to you guys. You guys will have it forever. Um, and ESPN and Netflix, they just weren't going to let that lose. And I, I don't think HBO really saw it in that way because they didn't, you know, maybe they didn't have the right people thinking about it. I think eventually they did. And, yeah, yeah. You know, I think, I mean, Casey's a man. Casey was the guy who canceled my show. I love Casey. I yeah, think yeah, he's yeah. one of the best. And um, initially when I pitched Music Box to them, which was the beginning of 2018, it was trying to borrow um, some of the stuff that worked for ESPN um, and trying to leverage the pedigree I had in the space, for better or worse, and then um, really trying to create a brand for them. And the big thing I pointed to as I was pitching to them was they'd just done this Joe Paterno movie that Al Pacino was in. It was it was a good movie. And it cost like, I don't know, 25 million bucks and it was on on a Saturday and it was an hour, 45 minutes and it goes away. And I was like, we could make a music documentary series that for the same money that Paterno movie, maybe even less, and you guys could create a franchise that's on for... 20 years. Like, why wouldn't we do that? And I laid out all these different ideas and how it would work. And, um, and to their credit, Plepler saw it and Casey really liked it. And, and we were off. I I think what I underestimated was, um, was how hard it was to get even six documentaries done in music. That's, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a whole other between the artists and the labels and the rights. And I mean, holy shit. Yeah. The managers and Jesus, (laughs) But we were early with the idea. And by the time we got it done, the IP thing had totally changed and documentaries had blown up. But we, in 2018, that people weren't thinking that way. Yet. It was really the when the last dance happened, that was 2020. And that really flipped the numbers and everything. Well, there were two things that I think you guys have sort of changed the thinking about. And before I even ask you about more of, of that one with Music Box, I just have to ask this idea that Podcasts can really work as a business if you 
are quick to react to things. You can't do it. It's like, I know one of the things that I, I believe pissed you off about having a sports column back in the magazine was that you could write something and it's six days before anyone reads it. And yep. increasingly with the internet uh, and with podcast, like that was not acceptable to people anymore. So the, when you guys really began to go more heavily into podcasting, I think you're around 2018, the idea was and remains like we got to quickly deal with what people are talking about, right? Yeah, being more reactive. I we we look at it like expertise, passion, and being in the mix when stuff's happening. I think are the three things because you can do the Evergreen podcast. And we've done a bunch of them and we've had a lot of success. And we have stuff like the rewatchables that you know yeah. they it doesn't react to anything. You know, we right. might react have do an anniversary or whatever. But I think um I've told this story, but we had Kyrie Irving got traded when we had our basketball meeting, um, summer 2017. We were just all together and the trade happened and we just kind of sprung into action and a couple of people were writing about it and we were doing an emergency podcast about it. And I think that's when we kind of realized this is what the ringer is versus what Grantland was. Grantland, we could kind of parachute in whenever we wanted because we had ESPN.com. We had the website. We didn't have to react like that. My podcast, we would tape you know, go up on Monday, me and Sal would go up on Monday at four o'clock and we're doing guest alliance. You know, we didn't care if it was 18 hours later. By 2019, we were Sunday night, Sal and I are taping. And if there's a trade deadline podcast, we're taping as the trade deadline happened. Last night I did after game four of the finals, I was doing my podcast last night afterwards because Sometimes you can have like a 12, 13 hour window when people care what you think. Other times you'll have longer, but I think you have to be ready for both. So I think that was when our network, that plus the ability to just keep spotting talent, which I think has been kind of our best, I think, trait of the last, going back to Grantland, like just over yeah. and over again, being able to find talent or elevate talent. And then just to come back to a music box, which each one of these six are outstanding i just I've thank you and so enjoyed each one of them um and there are moments i know you said i think five of them you guys commissioned one of them i guess the dmx you guys acquired but i can think of moments in each one of them where you're just like this is not a common thing with documentaries to have such a powerful the dmx one that i keep coming back to is uh who would ever imagine like whatever less than a year before his death that DMX would be sitting, singing or standing with his family, singing along to memories, uh, Liza right. Minnelli covering strikes like, and it, it just is so poignant and powerful way to have that one. And then the stuff about the misogyny that you, we see Alanis Morissette at Woodstock looking just, you know, trying to not crumble in front of this group of assholes. Yeah. Um, you know, all of each one of them has something like that. And I guess I, you know, somebody might wonder how does Bill Simmons literally known as the sports guy wind up as the music guy as well? Was this always sort of a, uh, music? We know pop culture has always been a passion, but the specifically yeah. music, how did that become such a, a focus as well? Yeah. I mean, I love pop culture as much as I love sports. I, I think it's more opportunity than anything. Um, the sports since basically since our first 30 for 30 and some of the HBO ones, just a lot of the ideas have been done and it just seemed like there were more available ideas in music. Um, but for me, it was the opportunity that I saw was a lot of the music docs were being done the same way. And there was the same kind of sameness to them that there was when we started really fleshing out what 30 for 30 was in 07. 
um, there are all these beginning, middle, end documentaries. And I always found myself wishing that the whole documentary was about that one 25 minute section in the middle. That was always the best part. It's like, why couldn't that have just been the documentary? So you look at it that way. And, and then, um, you know, there are a couple of documentaries that I thought were really impactful. I've talked about them, like the Eagles documentary in 2014, I thought was fantastic. Um, so there were examples of the kind of things we wanted to do. It was like, well, we knew that there was a really good U2 documentary about when they almost broke up that Davis Guggenheim did. And, um, so there, there were examples. So for us, it was like, what's the story? Can you describe the story in a sentence? And can you, are you trying to answer a question? It can't just be like my documentary is about Alanis Morissette. It's like, well, what about her? And for that one, that was easy. It's like, how does somebody who's this 20 year old Canadian all of a sudden have one of the biggest albums of the decade? And then she goes on tour and overnight she's gone from a complete nobody to one of the most famous people in the world. What was that like? And that's the documentary. And I, I think once we, once we really honed in on that strategy, um, I think that really helped us. And then we had some pedigree in the space and then we really, 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 really tried to find filmmakers that we liked. We did a lot of scouting, doing the same process for season two, um, talking to people, trying to vibe with them. I think we're really filmmaker friendly, which I think word has probably gotten around a little bit on that. Um, we like to create an environment where it's just us and the filmmaker and the filmmaker side and where the, all the notes are coming through us. We're always trying to be additive. We're very wary of how just horrible the documentary process could get for the directors. And you really have to be conscious of that as you're trying to help nudge them along with notes. And um, so I think everybody that's worked for us, I'd like to think um, has really enjoyed the experience. And, uh, and it's just, it worked really well. And you, yeah, I mean, uh, to the extent that I think for the Emmys, you, I believe everybody who does a docuseries is asked to kind of put one forward as the sample to, to be considered for nominations. I believe that with you guys, you've, I believe it's the Kenny G one, which is, which is extraordinary as well. And I just wonder if that's the, if somebody wants to get just a taste of, you know, dip their toe in for, for one of these before they commit to all six, is that fair to say that that's the one that you would hope they start with? You know, that's a really shitty thing to be told. Like you can only, su you can only submit one that could better Cause <laughs> yeah, we liked yeah. all six and right, right, right. So we really talked about it because, you know, it's always when people are like, what's your favorite 30 for 30. It's like, I don't really have one. I have right. these, uh, like eight. I like for different reasons. In that case, like, I think, why we submitted the Kenny G one was because the degree of difficulty was so ridiculous for that one. Anyone we told that idea to, we're like, what are your six documentaries? We'd tell them this, this, and this. And, and then we're doing one about Kenny G. And they would always go, what? Like, you could see them <laughs> recoil. Like, what? Yeah. Kenny G, why? And um, how Penny Lane executed that one was just was just unbelievable. So I, I think I think that's why we submitted that one, because you kind of can't believe it's working. And yet she's just so good at what she does. And he's such a willing participant. And to me, that's like the perfect documentary. The best ones that I've been involved with are always like, I went into viewing this thinking a certain way. And then when it was over, I thought a different way. 
Right. And if you do that with a documentary, that's what it's all about. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons to do one, right? You do like a true crime one, you're trying to prove a point or you're doing, trying to capture whatever, or maybe you have some, you know, you're doing something about global warming, whatever it is. But I think if you can fundamentally change what somebody thought in 90 minutes, that's that's where you want to be with a documentary. It's the best thing about it. Right. And then if you can do it artfully, even better. It, there, it's it can't recommend it enough. And well, just Thank for you. our last 30 seconds, if it's all right, just the first thing that comes to your mind, if the Celtics hadn't been great when you were a kid, would you still have cared enough about sports to pursue the sort of career that you did? A hundred percent, because remember, I was also a diehard Patriots fan and they were terrible for 90 percent <laughs> of my life until right. I was 35. <laughs> so, all right. Next, uh, how would your life look today if ESPN had never hired you? I think I would have probably ended up like on Fox Sports or CBS Sportsline. I think I eventually end up at ESPN at some point. It just would have happened at some point that decade. All, all roads lead to ESPN for anyone in sports. At some point, you, I mean, even Rick Riley ended up in there, which seemed inconceivable. So Keith Olbermann came back, you know. So I, I just think... I think it would have happened eventually. Final question. If sports never existed even, just so we could have a sense of whether you're, you know, what else is really fires you up? I mean, if there's no sports, what is there uh, that you would have probably gravitated towards as, as a, as a, for a living? Pop culture. I just would have been everything I did on the sports side. I just would have been TV movies, I think, and some probably music too, and, and done that and probably been doing who knows, the pyramid of Hall of Fame pyramid of TV stars. I would have figured it out. Would have been the same, <laughs> probably the same playbook. Well, glad we don't have to find that out. And uh, well, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it and uh, really enjoy all the work. So thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks. And I'm, I appreciate all the nice words about the series too, because uh, I thought it was, a, it was a blast to work on and I loved the filmmakers we ended up with. So that was great. Awesome. Can't wait for season two, which is coming. Do we know when? It's 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 coming at some point. It's you know, it's music. <laughs> you never know. You never know when we're gonna have six, but we'll get there. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks again, Bill. Appreciate it. Appreciate Thank it. you. Thanks very much for tuning into Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. Until next time, thanks for joining us.